Well, good morning, Salem family, both those who are here this morning, and uh, we have many who are watching online today for a variety of reasons. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we begin a new series uh, in which we're going to take a detailed look at what is known as the Beatitudes. You say, well, why are they called Beatitudes? We're going to figure that out as we work through this, through this series over the next eight weeks or so. Um, really, this is eight principles that Jesus gives for us to be able to live a fulfilled and, and happy life. I want to talk for a moment about the setting for this, and then we're going to dive in here in a few moments. Um, so we're going to spend some time here talking about the introduction, kind of what is the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, all of that, and then we'll jump into the first Beatitude. We get to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus has not been in his earthly ministry very long, and, and people are just starting to hear the name of Jesus. And they're curious about him. They want to know more about him, and, and so they start following him. They listen to his teaching. They hear or they see his miracles, and, uh, and really there's this, there's this buzz around Jesus. Everybody wants to see Jesus, be involved in what Jesus is doing, and, um, and, and they're very, very curious about him. Who is this man? Um, is he a fraud? Is he a crazy man? Or is he really legit from God? Is he a prophet? Or is he, like he says a little bit later on, is he the son of God who provides eternal life? It could be that you are here today or maybe you're watching online and, um, and you're wondering the same thing about Jesus. Who is this man? Um, is he that fraud? Is he a crazy man? Is he really the son of God who he claimed to be who can give us eternal life? And if you're searching or maybe if you've been a Christian for a really long time, um, what we're about to talk about here as we work through the Beatitudes is going to help us clearly understand who Jesus is because Jesus is going to encourage us to live like him. And as he encourages us to live like him, we're going to see how Jesus lived. What did Jesus have to say and did he back up what he had to say? And yes, he did. We're going to learn who Jesus was and, and, and what, he, what he would have firmly held to and, and we're going to learn how we can live based on that. You're in uh, Matthew chapter 5. What I want you to do is actually go back to chapter 4 and look at the very last verse there in chapter 4, okay? Here's what it says. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the jo Jordan. Did you see that? Great crowds followed him from all of these regions. Wherever Jesus was and wherever they were hearing about him, they came to Jesus. And then verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. All right, let's pray. Father, as we approach your word today, I ask that in everything that you receive the glory and honor that you alone are due. Father, would you hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ and, and behind your word? And Father, only the things that you want said, Lord, I pray that those are the things that come out of my mouth. But Father, would you draw us close to you? Help us to read your word, understand your word, and then, Lord, how to understand how to apply it to our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jesus is, uh, has gone up on the mountain is what we find there. Okay, verse 1, Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, and then when he sat down, the disciples came to him. So what happens here is Jesus is looking around. He sees all these people. He, he goes up to the mountain, and he sits down. 
Now, in this time period when a person of any kind of authority would sit down in a public place, it's a sign that something significant is about to happen. And in this case, Jesus is about to start teaching. Um, earlier on in his life, when, uh, when Jesus was just a boy, you remember the story of Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem with his parents, and his parents lose him, and how you lose a kid for a couple of days the way they did, it, it just happened. They go back, and what do they do? They, they find Jesus sitting in the temple, and he's, and he's teaching. Even at that young age, in this, in this place of authority, he's sitting and he's teaching. Well, here Jesus is. He comes to the top of the mountain, and he, and he sits down. Here's what we find next, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And when Jesus speaks, he teaches the people something important. That's what we're going to find all throughout Matthew chapter 5, all, through, all the way through chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off here with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the first part of this very long sermon that Jesus is going to preach, okay? And that's what we're going to focus on the most over the next eight weeks is this Beatitudes. Now, when you see a commercial on TV, all right, and how many of you watch TV? Most people. If not, you see a commercial somewhere. You all, there's commercials everywhere, all right? But you see a commercial, and, and really, when you see a commercial, you see that um, the marketing people who wrote that commercial are doing their best to make sure that you believe that you can't be happy unless you buy their product. And they try to tell you that your happiness is tied up in you buying this product. They don't want you to know it, but happiness isn't really found in that product. You know how I know? Here's how I know. It's because they have this product today, and next year they're going to come out with the newly um, remodeled product that now if you buy this one, then you're really going to be happy. And honestly, they keep that cycle going on and on and on and on. Now, when Jesus starts off the sermon, he, he uses a marketing tool. It's kind of like the tool that you see in TV commercials, but there's one very big difference. You see, when you watch a TV commercial, they're not always telling the truth. You're not really going to be happy if you buy this or you use this. They don't want you to know, but happiness is not found in, your, in that product. But when Jesus comes to the Beatitudes and he uses some of the same techniques in helping people understand how they can be happy, the big difference is that Jesus is telling the truth. Here's how you really can be happy. It's not caught up in, your happiness is not caught up in these things that you buy. It's in who you are. That's what Jesus is going to show us. And it seems like as we work through these Beatitudes, it seems like Jesus is a horrible marketing agent. Because he sure wouldn't pass the test for a modern commercial writer, but he's going to tell the truth about how to be happy. Listen, you may be here this morning and you're the most miserable person in the world. And on the outside with other people, it seems like, you know what, I'm, I'm making it and I'm doing pretty good and I've got the things that I need in life. But at the core of who you are, you are really just a miserable person. You're not happy at all. You think that one thing is going to help and you try to, and you try using that, but it doesn't do anything for you except kind of give you a, a temporary high. So you use that, then you move on to something else and you hope that that person or that, or that event or that thing is going to do the trick, but it doesn't. And if that's you here today, or maybe you're watching online and that's you, then Jesus is speaking to you through the Beatitudes here. He knows how miserable we tend to be in life. He knows we can't seem to find happiness in, in anything. We can't be fulfilled in anything that this world has to offer. So these Beatitudes are Jesus' way of showing us how to find true happiness, lasting fulfillment. Here's another way to look at this. 
Jesus gives these ways to be happy, um, the Beatitudes as we call them, as a way to say this, to say, if this is you, and if you're finding happiness where it's supposed to be found in these Beatitudes, in Jesus, then congratulations. Congratulations. You are to be congratulated. You are to be envied because you have found the source of happiness. People search their whole lives for this and they, and they never ever find it. If you found happiness in these eight Beatitudes, then you are to be congratulated. There's a way to look at this. Now, in your handout today, um, as you came in, you would have received uh, uh, some notes that you can fill in. And so I want to encourage you to pull those things out and, and follow along here as I show you three general overarching principles for us to remember as we study the Beatitudes. First of all, the Beatitudes are for all Christians. The Beatitudes are for all Christians. And I would actually, at the end of that, write in the words, at all times, okay? So the Beatitudes are for all Christians at all times. These characteristics are meant to be manifest or shown or lived out by anybody who calls themselves a Christian. It's not like you're supposed to be the Christian in the church who is known as the one who is poor in spirit, okay? Or that there's another person who is known as the merciful, or the other who's known as the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. All right, the idea is that we are working towards all of these things. So at one time, we are working towards being merciful, towards being pure in heart, towards being the peacemaker, the meek. All of those things, the Beatitudes, are for all Christians at all times. Okay, number two, no Beatitude is a natural tendency. No Beatitude is a natural tendency. It's not like you're going to wake up one day and just all of a sudden you're going to be poor in spirit. Or you're going to wake up and you're merciful. We live in a sin-cursed world, and, and that is not how it works at all. Our sanctification is progressive. We progressively become more like Jesus. The natural human tendency is always going to be that we revert back to the old way of thinking and the old way of doing things. If we're going to adapt these beatitudes, it has to come through intentionality to do so. But we can't live out these beatitudes unless we understand them. And so that's why we're going to spend a Sunday for each beatitude for the next eight weeks, studying them one at a time. What does it mean to mourn as Jesus is talking about here? What does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? If we're going to fight that drift, that natural drift, then we've got to be intentional. We've got to know these things. What does it mean to do these things, to live these things? Number three, the Beatitudes show the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. They show the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. You know, one of the downfalls of any church, or any Christian for that matter, is that they so often look at what a person does for evidence of salvation. When in reality, Jesus is about to teach that what matters a whole lot more than what you do is who you are. The important thing is not that they do, the person doesn't do the action of being merciful, or being a peacemaker, or hungry and thirsting after righteousness. What's more important is that this is who they are at their core. This is who Jesus is. He is these things. He lived out the Beatitudes. And the more that we conform to his image, the more glory God receives, and that is where our fulfillment in life is going to come from. A person who is not a Christian can be merciful. They can be meek. Uh, they, can, they can hunger and thirst for righteousness for the moment, but it's an action. It's not who they are. 
So what Jesus is going to teach here is that who you are has got to change, not just what you do. And as who you are changes, that is when your actions, the fruit of your actions, that's when it changes. That's how this whole process works. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and that is you've never ever repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus alone to save you, then you can be a good person. And people can look at you and think, man, that's a great, great person. But the reality is that you are just as dead in your sin as you can be, and you don't have God's help in living out these beatitudes in living the way that he has called you to live as a Christian. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in writing about the beatitudes in general, says this before we get into talking about the first one. He says, the vital questions which we therefore ask ourselves are these. Do we belong to this kingdom? Are we ruled by Christ? Is he our king and our Lord? Are we manifesting these qualities in our daily lives? Is it our ambition to do so? Do we see that this is what we are meant to be? Are we truly blessed? Are we happy? Have we been filled? Have we got peace? I ask, as we have looked together at the general description, what do we find ourselves to be? It is only the man who is like that who is truly happy the man who is truly blessed. It is a simple question. My immediate reaction to these beatitudes proclaims exactly what I am. If I feel that they are harsh and hard, if I feel that they are against the grain and depict a character and type of life which I dislike, I am afraid it just means that I am not a Christian. If I do not want to be like this, I must be dead in trespasses and sins, quoting from Ephesians 2 there. I could never have received new life. But if I feel that I am unworthy and yet I want to be like that, well, however unworthy I may be, if this is my desire and my ambition, there must be new life in me. I must be a child of God. I must be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and of God's dear son. And he ends by saying, let every man examine himself. That's what we want to do. We want to examine ourselves. In which ways do we need to become more like Christ and to live out these beatitudes as it changes who we are? All right, so with that, let's start looking at the first beatitude. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit, what in the world does that mean? Here's a simple definition for you, okay? Poor in spirit, very simply, is a deep recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. Deep recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. Now, we know what happens when a person is financially bankrupt here on this earth, okay? We know that, that they have nothing. For one reason or another, they have no way to pay their bills and they have no way to function, so they go bankrupt. They declare that they have nothing at all by which to pay for life, right? Spiritual bankruptcy is the declaration that you have nothing by which to buy salvation. You are poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer to obtain righteousness on your own. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit says, I am unable to become righteous on my own. The rich in spirit, on the other hand, says, I can offer such and such. And you fill in the blank. I can offer such and such to obtain righteousness. Now, Jesus says here to be poor, not rich in spirit. Be poor in spirit, not rich in spirit. Now, 
When Jesus says this, he is talking to a bunch of people who this really would have resonated with one way or another. Everywhere Jesus went, he had two types of people who followed him. There was the, um, maybe what we would call blue-collar working man and woman. Uh, Then there's the religious leaders, and kind of lumped in that group every now and then. There's a person of some uh, financial means or of some kind of authority position there in the community. The rich in spirit were the ones who felt like they had something to offer God. They felt like, if I just do this, then God is happy with me. Or if I do this or this or this, look at me, God, look at what I've done. That's the rich in spirit. These are the good people. They consider themselves good. They thought in this way. They thought, you know, just look at the poor. Just look at those poor people. God must be pleased with me because I'm rich and I've been blessed with financial means or a financial or, or, or a great status in the community. And in fact, oftentimes they openly thanked God that they weren't like the poor. The poor in spirit, however, knew that they had nothing to offer God and they simply came to him with open hands and they, they just wanted to experience God. God, I just want you. The rich in spirit seek to get what they can out of God. The poor in spirit seek God for no other reason than the fact that they know that they are lost without him and that they are hopeless without him. Take your Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And this is a perfect example of the difference between the poor in spirit and the rich in spirit. Which, by the way, let me go back to rich in spirit here for just a second. Oftentimes... You're not openly saying, God, thank you that I'm not like this person. That's not what you say in your prayer. But the rich in spirit oftentimes live in such a way that they're puffed up. They're prideful. Look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can give. Look at what, look at, look at, look at, look at me. Poor in spirit, on the other hand, just a very simple way to look at it. Poor in spirit say, God, I am nothing. And they come with open hands. We're going to see that here in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted, by the way, verse 9 is where we're at, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He's talking about the rich in spirit there. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. A man stands by himself, he wants to be noticed most of the time. Sometimes people stand by themselves in a corner because they don't want to be noticed. But this is not this man. He wants to be noticed. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Folks, did you know that the kingdom of heaven is completely upside down from anything that we ever expect on this earth? Completely upside down. Multiple times Jesus is teaching and he says, those who will be great must be last. Those who will be last will be first. 
We think to be rich in spirit, oh man, look how, how charismatic that person is. Look how great that person is. Look how good a servant that person is. But it's Jesus who looks at the heart and he realizes, no, that person is trying to come to me with, with full hands. Saying, look at what I can bring you, God. That's not what he's looking for. I'm pretty sure that you don't go out in the street and pray loudly, thanking God that you're not like other people like that Pharisee did. But how often do we approach God with anything more than just empty hands? And here's what this might look like for you, okay? It might be that you, you, you think, because most of the time we don't say this out loud, but you might think, God, look at me, I went, I went to church today. I don't cuss, drink, chew, or hang out with girls who do. I was kind to my kids or my spouse when I didn't want to be. I put money in the offering box at church. And we say those things like, God, you should be impressed with me. Look at what I did. That's the rich in spirit. But listen, on contrast, the poor in spirit says this, God, I'm not strong enough to handle the temptation to sin. I need your help. I fail way too often at treating my spouse or my kids or my coworkers with love and respect and kindness. I need you to help me. God, I want my life to count for eternity. So can you fill me and use me in such a way that brings you honor and glory? God, I'm your child, but I know I sometimes sin. Please be merciful to me and forgive me and help me forgive other people around me. That's an example of the poor in spirit. But then with this, the command to be poor in spirit, blessed be, blessed be the poor in spirit, comes a promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is all of the rights, privileges, and benefits of the presence of God. I'll say that one more time. The kingdom of heaven is all of the rights, benefits, and privileges of the kingdom, or excuse me, of the presence of God. Where the presence of God is, that is where ultimate fulfillment and happiness in life can be found. We were created to live in the presence of God. However, because of sin, we are born separated from the presence of God with no hope for a relationship with him except through the death of his son, Jesus. And with the death that Jesus died in our place comes the chance for us to be a part of the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 4 says that the only way to God is through Jesus. If we want to be a part of God's kingdom, Jesus is teaching here in this first beatitude that it can only come by becoming poor in spirit. It's the only way that it can come. John Stott, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, writes this. He said, the kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it with their own prowess. In the Lord's day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom, who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their accomplishments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but tax collectors and prostitutes, the rejects of human society, who knew that they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing, all they could do was cry out to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. There is no way to get to God except to become poor in spirit. No way whatsoever. You cannot receive an eternal inheritance. You cannot have everlasting life without first being poor in spirit. 
You can be the richest person in this world. You can be the poorest person in this world in terms of finances and still go to hell, be separated from God because you didn't make the choice to be poor in spirit here on this earth. There's no favoritism with God. You're either poor in spirit or you're rich in spirit. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 read this way. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? We're God's chosen people. Are we any better off in this whole deal? Do we have a leg up? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're all in the same boat. It's not until we realize just how worthless and spiritually bankrupt we really are and we take that to God with empty hands that we can find the kingdom of heaven. Oh, but the promise is once we do that and we, once we realize that and come to God with those empty hands, ours is the kingdom of heaven with all of the rights and all the benefits and all the privileges of being a part of the presence of God. It's ours. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And y'all listen, it doesn't mean that, that when we do come and when every blessing and every grace upon grace is lavished on us by God, that does not mean it's always going to be easy here on this earth. But it does mean that no matter what this life throws at us, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior who gave himself as a ransom so that we might have eternal life is ours. I love the... Um, the words from the hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the attitude of the poor in spirit. I'm nothing. I can bring nothing to you, God. I have nothing. I'm completely incapable of saving myself, and I need you, Jesus. You know, at the beginning, I told you that one of the ways that, um, that you can look at the Beatitudes is kind of through the lens of the word congratulations. So here's a question for you to ask yourself. Would Jesus congratulate me for being poor in spirit. Because it doesn't matter what others think of you or what, even what you think of yourself. All that matters is what Jesus thinks of you. What does he think of you? Does he see you through the lens of being poor in spirit? Or are you trying to bring all these different accomplishments and all these different skills and talents and all that stuff to the table and say, here you go, God. Which way does he see you? Would Jesus congratulate me for being poor in spirit? I really hope that Jesus doesn't look on you and say, no, I see your heart, and there's pride there. There's deceit even there. You're rich in spirit. You're living for yourself more than you're living for me. I hope that's not what Jesus sees when he looks at you, and if it is, folks, there's nothing you can take him except yourself.
That's what Jesus is saying. Right here at the beginning of, the, of this teaching, right off the bat, first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, may we come to you with empty hands, knowing we can't bring anything. There's, there's nothing that we can offer that you need, but you simply want us. And that's it. Father, we, Father, we're thankful for that because there's really nothing that we can bring. Father, help us to be poor in spirit and never ever forget to be poor in spirit. Remembering that when we are poor in spirit, ours is the kingdom of heaven with all of the rights, benefits, and privileges of the presence of God. In Jesus' name, amen.